was uh, pleasantly uh, surprised and uh, glad when he called and and uh, wanted to know if maybe I could fill in uh, today since uh, he needed to be gone. And in fact, he even asked me if I'd come back next week too, but uh, I'm already uh, booked for that day doing something else, so um, I'm not sure what, what the plan is for next Sunday, but I'm glad to be here today. And today is a very important day for the church. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, because there are, th- there are about three days uh, of the year that are important to the church. We celebrate Christmas. That's an important day to the church, the birth of Christ. We celebrate um, the resurrection at the time of Easter because that's a very important day to the church. That's when Christ arose. Today is that third important day to the church. You know what today is? What? Pentecost. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Indeed it is. The day that the church began, as we heard in those verses that were read just a moment ago, And I'm going to look at some more of the words uh, about the church starting from the Apostle Peter. If you want to open your Bibles or uh, uh, light up your electronic devices, however you uh, get into the Scriptures, in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. Uh, Today is Pentecost Sunday, and part of Pentecost Sunday, uh, one of the things that Ignite is doing is we've reached out to a number of churches across the state of Illinois that would be willing to take an offering on Pentecost Sunday to help us plant churches uh, in uh, in the what we call the Chicago land area, which really is anything above I eighty, uh, all the way from the border of Iowa uh, and Illinois, all the way across even into the northern parts of Indiana. And um, we've been doing this for for over 60 years. Uh, The organization used to be called the uh, Chicago District Evangelizing Association. But a lot of churches have changed names over the years. They haven't changed anything else. They've just changed their name. And and, and so we changed our name as well. And we went from Chicago District Evangelizing Association to Ignite and planning churches. But something else has happened uh, in the more recent years. Not only are we planting churches, we are replanting, restarting churches. And uh, we did one not too far from here in your camp area uh, three years ago when we restarted uh, the church at Oregon, and it's doing quite well. Uh, before uh, or by September of this year, we will launch again the church that no longer exists uh, in Crown Point, Indiana. We will also exist, we also launch a new church for a church that no longer exists in Dyer, Indiana. And uh, we are looking, however, still to plant new churches. We're focusing on what's called the Randall Road Corridor, which is uh, O'Hare Airport area. Why in the world people want to move into an airport area? I don't know. But um, uh, I, I live close enough to the Peoria Airport, I hear, hear those planes flying over the top of my house. But anyway, that's a, that's a very highly population growing area right now. So either there or someplace in Lake County, we are still looking at um, a strong possibility that we may be planning a church in the not too distant future in Freeport, which is I think about an hour, hour and a half uh, north of here. And um, so that's some of the stuff that, that Ignite is doing. And um, 
I'm in, I'm south of I-80 just trying to make churches aware that we have a mission, great mission field in the state of Illinois. Twelve and a half million people live in the state of Illinois. Eight and a half million of them live above I-80. And uh, that's a great mission field. That's an un, under-churched area. And uh, so if you're looking for some mission work to do, um, we would be glad to, to have you come alongside of us. Um, not only do we look for the financial support, but uh, uh, as we did in Oregon, we went in and, and rehabbed the building. And so we took a crew from the church that I used to preach for in Creve Corps up to help with that. Right now, we're lining up crews to help uh, rehab the building in Dyer, Indiana, and, um, and make it usable uh, for in this new church plant. But today is the day of Pentecost, and on this day, as we read in the book of Acts, there was preaching. And not only was there preaching, but there was great response to the message that was preached. And Peter was that preacher on the day of Pentecost. And in our text today from 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has written a letter to the churches in the provinces of Rome. And he is no doubt reflecting on the beginning of the church as he recounts the joy in planting that church, the joy that those who became the church were experiencing in their lives. And he writes, beginning in verse 6, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A famous motivational speaker was once asked about the most difficult speech he ever had to give. And he said, well, it was when I spoke to a national convention of undertakers. And my topic was to explain to them how to look sad during a $20,000 funeral. You see, when there's joy inside... You, it's hard to contain it. It's hard to keep it there. It's hard to keep it from showing. And on the day of Pentecost, there was a lot of joy inside those people as 3,000 of them were baptized in that day alone. And I assume a lot of them or most of them or all of them were feeling exactly what the Ethiopian uh, was feeling after Philip baptized him on, on, on the road uh, there in Acts chapter 8. We read that after Philip baptized him, he be, uh, the, the, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. He was happy. The Apostle Paul wrote the Epistle of Joy, the book to uh, the church at Philippi, and it's given rise to some, some songs. I, I think of them today more today as camp songs. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. And Peter begins with, in all this you greatly rejoice. In what? Rejoice in that he has given us new birth. Rejoice into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, the inheritance that is kept for you in heaven. Let me take you back to Pentecost in the book of Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches 
the death, burial, and resurrection message of Jesus Christ, there's response. 3,000 are baptized that day, and, in, and, and we can greatly rejoice in that. And then we read, as we continue on in the second chapter, these people devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine or teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. They were filled with joy at the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions and gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were filled with joy. And they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord continued to add to their number daily those who were being saved. And in this we can rejoice. Then when you look at Acts chapter 3, a lame man is healed. And his healing gave rise to a, a fun and joyful song that we used to teach kids in vacation Bible school. Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He held out his palm and asked for an alm. And this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I you. In the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And then the course goes, he went walking and leaping and praising God. He was filled with joy. Again, we can rejoice. Acts chapter 4. All the believers were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed uh, that any of their possessions was their own, and they shared everything they had. Wow. The church was taking care of people of, with the greatest needs. And in this, we can greatly rejoice. This, my friends, is why we can greatly rejoice when salvation comes to people, when healing comes to people's physical bodies and souls. And when we're able to take care of one another and be cared for, this is what the church is all about. Recently, I heard a preacher, <laughs> excuse me, preach that the world needs to know what the church is for and not what the church is against. And when you're known for reaching out to lost people, to the unchurched, the disenfranchised of the world, people who need the Lord will be drawn to God. But when you're known for what you are against... People will be drawn to you. And there's a difference. When you are known for what you're against, people will be drawn to you rather than to God. And I'm against same-sex marriage. I'm, a, I'm against divorce. I'm against adultery. I'm against gender transference. I'm against abortion. And everything that goes against and despises the sanctity of human sexuality. But it doesn't take much to stir the pot and stir up a riot. An indefensible action and an accuser picks up the first stone and soon there's a crowd of righteous stone throwers because everyone in the crowd knows what they are against. And I read that Bible account of the woman caught in the act of adultery and she was drug out of the house and, and, and thrown on the ground in front of Jesus and they were ready to, to stone her. And you know what her accusers were against. And had I been there, I might have picked up a stone myself. But I heard a song on the radio some time ago. It was recorded by the Isaacs, a uh, new southern gospel song I'd never heard. 
It's called rocks. Rocks are heavy and they hurt people you love. And it's so easy reaching down and picking them up. But I ain't going to throw no stones at nobody. Don't want to get hit by a ricochet. Ain't got no room for rocks in my pockets anyways. He just sat there drawing on the ground beside her. She was caught red-handed and the man couldn't wait to, the men couldn't wait to stone her. Now I'm just paraphrasing, but Jesus said, wait a minute, step right up and be the first to throw if you ain't got some sinning. One by one, they all dropped their stones and went home. Rocks are heavy. They hurt people you love. And it's so easy reaching down and picking them up. But I ain't going to throw no stones at nobody. Don't want to get hit by a ricochet. Ain't got no room for rocks in my pockets anyway. Rock of Ages, sweet, sweet cornerstone, was meant to be a place to hide and not something we throw. So I ain't going to throw no stones at nobody because I need grace to make every day Ain't got no room for rocks in my pockets. Ain't got no room for rocks in my pockets anyway. We know what Jesus was against because it's written about in the Bible. But when confronted by the sin of people, we discover more of what he was for. He was for saving mankind. He was for this woman and millions of women just like her in need of forgiveness and grace. He was for those men who wanted to throw the stones and millions more like them who are in need of mercy and grace. And I've been known in the past to write letters and I've stood in a picket line and I've used the bully pulpit more than once, but I don't like to do those things anymore because I understand what's so amazing about Grace. That's a good title of a good book. I'd urge you to read it if you haven't by Phil Yancey. I also heard Caleb Kate Kaltenbach speak at a conference that I attended, and I've read his book, Messy Grace. Caleb is a graduate of Ozark Christian College and now preaches in Southern California. Caleb knows something about what he wrote. You see, his parents were divorced when he was three years old. And they both remarried. His father married another man. His mother married another woman. And so, depending upon which weekend it was for him in the custody battle, it was whether he had two dads this weekend or two moms next weekend. His dad was more quiet about his arrangement. But his mother was an activist. She was marching. She was flag-waving. She was speaking out. She was teaching about her rainbow connection. And when Caleb was in middle school, his mother took him to a march called the Gay Pride Parade. He said it was kind of fun in the beginning, and he doesn't remember seeing anything that he could describe as all that lewd or radically wrong about any of the marchers. They were happy. There was lots of music, lots of color. But what he does remember is when the parade started and as they were going along the route, Christians holding up signs calling them faggots and condemning them to hell. And he said they didn't throw any rocks that day. No, they threw bottles of water and urine at people in the parade. And he says, I wonder where Jesus would have been on that day. You see, what you and I are against isn't nearly as important as what Jesus was for. And what I am against never saved anybody that I know of. 
But what Jesus is for can save everybody. Are there any here today who identify as baby boomers in our American culture? I'm one. Okay. How about Gen Xers? That's the next generation after us baby boomers. And then what about the millennials? Well, let me ask you, are there any nuns here today? Now, that's not N-U-N-S like in the Catholic sense of uh, sisterhood, but N-O-N-E-S. Any nuns here today? You see, if there were, I would be surprised because the nuns are a cross-generation of people who believe in God, who have accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They've been baptized. They serve others around them. But they don't ever talk about church. And don't try to talk church to them. They're just not interested. Why? Well, because the church is a downer. You know? Um, I, I can only appreciate what, you've, what we've been through here to the beginning of worship today. Okay? Um, you know, the church that I normally worship with, the church I retired from, my daughter is a worship leader. We have instrumentation. We have words on the screen. We sing songs that aren't in the hymn book. Okay, And that nearly split churches uh, apart uh, 10 years ago or maybe a little longer. Nuns don't want to talk about the music in the church because it just breeds a fight. Okay, So down with the cross-cultural reach, we reach out to feed the poor in the name of the church, but heaven forbid we invite them into our church. I heard a sad account of a woman in a church that I'm familiar with working in their local food bank, and, and she sits in front of people who, who come in and maybe fill out a little piece of paper before they get uh, their food basket. And sometimes some of those folks come in, and they're not always clean. And there's an odor about them. And so she is only too willing to feed them, but... She's been known to pull her shirt up over her nose like a bandana. How do you how do you reach out to somebody in this world that's struggling? We love those babies who are cross-culturally adopted, but we are suspect of those folks who might visit our church because they're not of our kind. And the youth want to have a lock-in, but we don't want them bringing their unchurched friends into the church. They might sneak in some dope or start dancing or damage the pews and walls. And there are all those things that the church seems to be against. And then there are those that we're against that wear the title of one of those letters in the Rainbow Coalition, LBGTQ. There are those who practice abortion, those who've had an abortion, those who get into the politics, who favor gun control, those who are Second Amendment rights, hardliners, civil rights, women's rights, same-sex marriages. Do you see why there are people who declare that they are a nun when it comes to the church? 
If the church is always against something, is Jesus against something? Yeah, there are things Jesus is against, but when faced with it, it's what Jesus is for. And that's mercy and forgiveness and grace. In our joy, Satan interferes and brings persecution and deception and anger and murder against the church. And Peter next says in his letter, Though now for a little while you've had to suffer all kinds of trials. Who knows better than Peter? Let's go back to Acts and see what was happening in Acts chapter 4. We, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail. And then they called him in the next day. And they demanded that they not speak in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And what Jesus is for. Turn to Acts chapter 5 and you'll find Peter and John were arrested and then freed by the Spirit and taken captive again, reprimanded again, flogged for their teachings. But not all the problems to counterattack the joy of those early Christians came from without. Sometimes those who were deceived by Satan about the church being happy brought their unhappiness into the church and so the church was attacked from within. I'm sure that that's never happened here. That's why in my tenure of 35 years with the same church, we garnered members from a dozen or more different churches, and half of those came from independent Christian churches like we were. And most of them came because they were unhappy, and that's why they left the church where they were at. In Acts chapter 6, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Already, we're just to the sixth chapter of Acts, and we've already got a fight brewing in the church. As if this was not enough working against the church from without, why not work against it from within? And Satan takes delight in that. And we, so we take the emphasis off the main thing, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is our hope and our salvation. And we put it on the aesthetics of a building, of the needs of church members, and how we regard our money and our possessions. You know what happens when people get their feelings hurt? You know what happens when a church doesn't spend money the way you think they should spend the money that you help put in the offering plate? You know what happens when personalities clash? You know what happens when we get so caught up in building a structure? People wrestle with color schemes and and, uh, the cost of paint and carpet and air conditioning and heating and pew and pew chairs. And I thought we were going to split the church at Creve Corps one time because we decided to pad the pews. And in the midst of the discussion, somebody came up with this brilliant idea. Let's take the pews out. And put in pew chairs. Everybody will have their own individual seat to sit on. And I thought, you know, there's going to be some people in my generation that are going to really pitch a fit about that. And boy, was I ever wrong. It was the generations behind my generation that pitched a fit about that. And I had one young lady say, It wouldn't be church when I get ready to get married if there weren't pews when I walk down the aisle. 
Isn't it amazing the things that we get so caught up with? And then when we become so adamant about it, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen is about to die. And he's giving his last testimony. And he says, you stiff-necked people. And Peter's joy is under attack as well as the church. And at this particular time, part of the attack is Paul, who would later write the the epistle of joy. His his name at this point is Saul, and he is the persecutor of the church. (coughs) Excuse me. He's the guy that's holding their coats while they're stoning Stephen to death. The Jewish religious leaders, men who base their religious pursuits on their circumcision, are incensed with anger at Stephen's message. And he says, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicated the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that, has given, that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. How angry were these men? Well, Acts 7 ends in bitterness, not joy. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of the Lord. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as they covered their ears and yelling in the top of their voices, they all rushed him. They dragged him out of the city. They began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses held their coat, laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried, Almost the same kind of prayer that Jesus prayed from the cross. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Members of the Sanhedrin, that's like saying members of the church in our day and age, there's a lot we don't like to hear or ever want to hear about our own sinfulness. We want the message to always be about joy and hope and heaven. Joel Osteen is a popular health and wealth preacher on on the airways. And I just read recently, he doesn't preach about hell because he says there's enough doom and gloom in this world. He doesn't want people to feel worse than they already do. However, as long as sin rules in this world, you have to understand that so much of this world is in pursuit of that which Jesus is against. When you understand this, then this is how much you know what Jesus is for. Peter concludes in this paragraph in our text, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. These refers to the grief and trials we are made to suffer. These have come to prove the genuineness of your faith, faith that is genuine, solid, proven, stands against everything else. It is greater than gold that perishes. When your faith is so strong that you can look death in the face and not fear it, 
When your faith is so strong and no temptation or sin can cause you to give it up or lose your faith, when your faith is so strong that no matter what your preacher says or does, what the elders of this church says or does, what this church says or does, you will stand and not lose faith. How does that happen? Verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your faith is something you prove and not something that has to be proven to you. The reason an atheist can't believe in God is because he wants solid, hardcore proof that there is a God. The reason the evolutionist can't believe in creationism is because his theory is more proof to him than my faith in the creation by God. The reason that Pentecostals have to have a sign such as healing or speaking in tongues or being slain in the spirit is to validate their feelings. Faith is not about what you feel or even desire to feel. It's about believing and trusting and putting God in complete and absolute control of your life. Look around you, my friend. The church is ineffective in this sinful world and the culture we live in because the faith of God's people has been surrendered to the government, to the culture, to feelings, and nothing to the glory of God. Back in Acts, as the church was emerging, those arrests and floggings, even Stephen's martyrdom, were out of fear. Somebody was fearful of losing control, losing power over a group of people, maybe even losing their own soul. When Martin Luther broke with the Catholic Church, it was because the church held control and power over the people. When the Protestant Reformation began, it was an attempt to bring the church back to the foundation of faith in God. The restoration movement that I believe this church is a part of was an attempt to no longer try and reform the church, but restore the church to what it looked like in the book of Acts. More churches today are looking more like social welfare agencies rather than strongholds of faith. Proclaiming the gospel and leading people to faith in God and and Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I know there are churches today that have more joy over how many snack packs they're packing for their local school than over how many people they could have shared the gospel with, but they were too busy packing snack packs. Max Licato, and I close with this today, Max Licato writes in his book, The Gentle Thunder, a beggar came and sat before me. I want bread, he said. How wise you are, I assured him. Bread is what you need. And you have come to the right bakery. So I pulled out my cookbook down from the shelf and began to tell him all that I knew about bread. I spoke of flour and wheat, of of grain and barley, and, and my knowledge impressed even me as I cited the measurements and recipe. And when I looked up, I was surprised to see that he wasn't smiling. I just want bread, he said. How wise you are. I applauded his choice. Follow me and I'll show you our bakery. Down the hallowed halls I guided him, pausing to point out the rooms where the dough is prepared and the ovens where the bread is baked. 
No one has such facilities. We have bread for every need. But there's the best part. I proclaimed as I pushed open two swinging doors, this is our room of inspiration. I knew he was moved as we stepped into the auditorium full of stained glass windows. The beggar said, nothing. I understood his silence. With an arm around his shoulder, I whispered, it overwhelms me as well. I leaped to the podium and I struck my favorite pose behind the lectern. People come from miles to hear me speak. And once a week, my workers gather and I read them the recipe from the cookbook of life. And by now, the beggar had taken a seat on the front row and I knew what he wanted. Would you like to hear me? (laughs) No, he said. I'd just like some bread. How wise you are, I replied. I led him to the front door of the bakery. What I have to say next is very important. I told him as we stood outside, look up and down this street, you will find many bakeries. But take heed, they don't all serve true bread. I know there's one that adds two spoons of salt rather than one. And there's another one that the oven is three degrees too hot. And they may call it bread, but I warn you, it's not according to the cookbook. The beggar turned, began walking away. Don't you want bread, I asked him. He stopped and looked back at me and struggled and shrugged. I guess I kind of lost my appetite. I shook my head and returned to my office. What a shame, I said to myself. The world just isn't hungry for true bread anymore. I don't know what is more incredible that God packages the bread of life in the wrapper of a carpenter's son or that he gives us the keys to the delivery truck. But but both moves seem pretty risky. But when a man comes inside the sanctuary begging for bread... For his hungry soul. He doesn't care about the recipe or how many bakeries there are. He just wants the bread of life. And today, friends, I don't have a recipe for bread or a preference of one bakery over another. I come today to offer only the bread of life who is Jesus, who wants to be the lover of your soul, who wants to give you mercy and grace, and then wants you in turn to give that same mercy and grace and bread to a lost and dying world. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Jesus, the bread of life. I thank you so much, Father, for the joy that there is in the church. But I pray, Father, that our joy is is not overwhelmed with our own self-awareness. But I pray, Father, that our joy comes from 
reaching out and helping others to find this joy. And Father, I pray today if there's any among us who came today looking for bread, that we might share the bread of life. Thank you, Father, for loving us with an everlasting love. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.